Well, a very good afternoon to you. It is really great to see you all. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity to speak with you on this uh, subject of shame, both today and uh, over the next uh, two Sundays. Some of you already might be thinking, three weeks? Three weeks? How can you talk about shame for three weeks? Well, I hope and think that we'll see that this is a very big subject that affects us all and and perhaps affects us in ways that we don't even yet fully appreciate. I think another question that some of you might have is, why can't you talk about something more positive? And I realize, of course, that this doesn't feel like the happiest Subject, and you may be the kind of person who has spent a lot of energy trying to forget negative emotions like shame. If that is you today, if that's your perspective today, I so want to encourage you to work hard to stay with me as we think about this topic, my aim and desire and concern and heart is for us to see what shame is so that it can be healed. And I hope that you and I, all of us together, will have the courage to look shame right in the eye until it dies. My hope here isn't that we'll spend the next three weeks weeks wallowing in the misery of shame but find relief through the gospel from it. One author I've been reading says this Shame has made an impressive resurgence in the popular media as well as the academy it is everywhere And there's virtually nothing left untainted by it. I'm sure sure you would agree with me. It is there in the bedroom. It is there in the boardroom. It's there in the classroom. It's there in the playground. Shame colours. The art studio, the science lab, the council chamber, even the church. It is there in our parliament and it lurks around our kitchen tables. Perhaps you're the kind of person who notices shame when you see it in other people. Perhaps you struggle with shame yourself. Maybe even today, shame has got you in a kind of headlock and paralyzed you in secret. I think it's very interesting that even when we can identify shame, within us, we still find it so hard to shake it off or drive it out, don't we? Sometimes I, I, sometimes I imagine my own life as, as a city with a wall around it and a moat around it and there's one drawbridge way in. And if shame were an army, sometimes it feels to me that sh- when shame lays siege on the citadel of my own heart, it feels like I can't find the controls to operate the drawbridge and lift it up so that shame can't come in. It feels before I know it that shame has overwhelmed me. It rushes inside as if I was powerless to stop it happening. I think one of the great ironies of our age is that we've spent as as in our western culture we've spent the last hundred years or so trying to eliminate any notion of guilt from our vocabulary and yet I think it's true that we feel more shame than ever before Let let me explain that. I I think you would agree with me. Most cultures in history, I think, have generally believed that morality 
is based on values that transcend us. Values that are outside of us in some way. But in this last century or so, our Western culture has gone through a massive philosophical shift. We now live in a culture that is different to any other culture in history that believes that the only way you can really know what is right and wrong is to stop letting others impose morality on you and simply learn to follow your own heart. Therefore, philosophically, we're in a place now where there can be no such thing as guilt. We've squeezed it out of our lives. We've been taught that it's guilt that cripples us and that we need to be set free from that kind of oppressive language. The problem, though, is that having spent the last hundred years doing that, we still feel fragile. We live in a culture where it is seen as increasingly implausible that anyone should believe in God, and yet the more we try to eradicate guilt, the more like sinners we feel. And the more sensitive and angry and anxious our culture seems to be. Our psychiatrists are as busy as they've ever been. What we've seen, I think, in the last couple of decades is an amazing growth, even in the number of books about shame. Dr. Brenny Brown is an American sociologist who's done a lot of research in the area of shame and vulnerability. Her books are New York Times bestsellers, and if you're familiar with the uh, TED Talks that you can watch online, one of her TED Talks in 2010 is one of the most watched TED Talks of all time with over 27 million views. Her audience is made up of technologists and scientists and business people and her passionate plea in that talk was, we need to talk about shame. Another New York Times bestseller called Healing the Shame That Binds You was written in the late 1980s and still sells today more than 13,000 copies every year. John Bradshaw's books have been translated into 42 languages and sold over 10 million copies. The blurb on the back of the book says this, Shame is the motivator behind our toxic behaviours. And on the cover, the author says, I used to drink to solve the problems caused by drinking. The more I drank to relieve my shame-based loneliness and hurt, the more I felt ashamed. It won't surprise you to know um, that I believe that the Bible has a great deal to say about shame. If we have the ears to hear it and the courage to face it, perhaps surprisingly, one of the first things we find in the Bible is that there was actually a time when shame was not part of human experience at all. In the book of Genesis, Chapter 2 and verse 25, we read these words. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide and they had nothing to fear. I think it's hard for us even to imagine what that must have felt like. Don't you agree? And it didn't seem to last very long. Because in the very next, chap next chapter of Genesis, we meet this same couple cowering in fear in the bushes, frantically trying to cover up their nakedness. One minute they knew no shame, 
the next minute they cannot bear for each other to look at each other. What we need to do today, I think, in this first talk is to do a little bit of the heavy lifting in a way. What I'd like to do today is to just help us to understand shame and also see a little bit of what kind of behaviours shame leads to. What I'd like us to do today is to try and define shame from the perspective of Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes and how they must have felt as their relationship with God and with one another began to implode. I think their experience of shame is like a kind of prototype, a precursor to all of our experiences of shame. And I think we can learn a lot just to see how they felt. I think that will resonate for us. Let let me just say this before we get started with that. Um, I think there's something I want to underline that is very pastorally important. I, I hope that it's pretty clear to you that the reason Adam and Eve felt shame was because they themselves had broken their relationship with God. They felt shame because they had done wrong. But I think it's really important for us to understand that this then becomes the beginning of them starting to hurt one another. Two things are true for us in our human life. We, we discover very quickly, I think, that we are people who can both do things wrong, but we're also vulnerable when people do wrong things to us. So I, I want to say to you right at the beginning that our lives are often a very messy mixture of two different kinds of shame. There's the shame we feel for our own sins, and there's the terrible shame we can feel that can sometimes be inflicted on us, either inadvertently or deliberately and cruelly, by other people. And that means that we, as people, constantly need two different kinds of help, don't we? On the one hand, we need ourselves forgiveness from God to cover our own shame, but we also surely need compassion and understanding when others shame us. Sometimes it can be very hard to distinguish between the two. And I, I want to be pastorally sensitive because for some of you even, your sense of being shamed by other people could be so painful that it can prevent you from going to God for the forgiveness and compassion that you yourself need. The shame we feel often at the hands of others might even make us feel that God himself is shaming us. So as we think about Adam and Eve and their shame and their brokenness, please do keep in mind that this is a very complex nuanced subject emotionally. I want to be very careful not to say things that will make your shame worse than it is if you feel shame. I think you've got that. And you've heard something of my heart there. Let's try and define what shame is. Oh, I, I should have said at the start as well, we've, we've done something different today. And if you, if you want to make notes on some of this, the the outlines on the back of your sheets, your notice sheets, so if you want to fill that in, you're very welcome. Let's say try and define shame. Uh, first of all, I want to suggest to you, I'm going to say three things. Shame, first of all, is the felt sense of not being enough. I'm using the word felt very deliberately there. Because shame is primarily something that we feel. Shame is an emotional response. I think sometimes we can't find the words, but we do know what it feels like. Even our bodies sometimes feel the physical sensation of shame. So we're talking here about an emotional 
sensation. Shame basically says, I am not blank enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not beautiful enough. I'm not competent enough. I'm not rich enough or thin enough. I just do not have what it takes. I don't measure up. I think some writers make a very helpful distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt says, I made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. Shame says, I did something wrong, whereas shame will say, I myself am all wrong. I think there's a sense in which guilt is perhaps more outward-looking because guilt is concerned with the effect of our behavior on other people, and we feel sorry about that. But shame tends to be very inward-looking and focuses on our own sense of not being enough. Secondly, um, I want to suggest to you that shame includes uh, the fear of abandonment. I came across this definition of shame online. Shame is the intensely painful feeling where we believe that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Unworthy of love and belonging. So shame firstly says, I don't measure up. And then it concludes that therefore I don't belong. I'm unlovable. I shouldn't even be here. I think this aspect of shame is deeply personal and it obviously involves other people's judgments of us. And we fear deep down that if other people really knew us, they would reject us and walk away and leave us. I think this is one of the reasons why our relationships with our own parents matter so much in our lives in our early development. But I do think there's an interesting irony in this. And uh, let, me, let me try and spell this out. I, I think it's true, as I've read on this, that a lot of the secular advice, when you read books on shame, the secular advice on how to overcome shame is really to tell yourself that you are worthy. And I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting that that's a problem. But the problem is that deep down, what we really crave is, for, is not for us to say, I am worthy. What we really crave is for someone else to look at us and say, you're worthy. So when, when you think about the fear of abandonment, we, we, we can't overcome the fear of abandonment by just telling ourselves some, something. Let, let me try and illustrate this. Um, on, on New Year's Eve, we had a few people around at our house, some of you were there, and we were all crowded into our front room getting ready to sing Old Lang Syne, and Robbie Williams was on the BBC singing his latest, I think it's his latest single, and it's entitled, I Love My Life. And he, Robbie Williams in this song is basically speaking as a parent to a young child and, he, and he's kind of saying to the child, I, I want to be the kind of parent that is so loving to you that when you grow up, you'll be able to say, I love my life. I don't want to do you harm. It's a good instinct. I, I thought we'd listen to a little clip, if that's all right. So we're going to, um, I think it's my job to, and then Sam's going to press play.
I'm free, I'm wonderful, I'm magical. This is what every parent wants their children to grow up feeling in some degree. But the reason it's ironic is that even if we could tell ourselves over and over and over again that we're worthy, the fear of abandonment would still be real, could still be real, because that depends on what someone else is saying about us. What we really crave is for others to say that we're okay. And what we really fear is that our significant other might abandon us. I, I want to suggest to you, it is therefore not enough for us to self-identify as worthy. We really need relationship for that fear to be dissipated. Oh man, we could say more about that, but let me, let's move on. I'm going to give you another one here. This is third. Shame has within it a sense, well, well, the first one is emotional, the second one is relational, this third one is just ever so slightly delusional. We're going to go back to Adam and Eve here. We know that Adam and Eve's instinct was to hide. Why? Why did they want to hide? At first, they had nothing to hide and nothing to fear. But the moment they assumed their independence from God, they dived into the bushes to hide. Tim Keller, an American pastor, gives a great illustration of this. Imagine... You were a policeman, a real policeman. And uh, someone comes up to you to ask you a question. You, you, you basically act out of who you really are. You're a policeman, someone comes to ask you a question, you just do what policemen do. And you don't give it a moment's thought. But imagine instead that you were not really a policeman or a policewoman. You had the uniform, you look like a policeman, you've got the helmet and the truncheon. Now when someone comes up to you and asks you a question, there's tension in the air. Your instinct would be to avoid anyone who looks at you too closely and avoid anyone who's going to ask you questions that maybe only a real policeman would know the answer to and you might trip up. In Genesis chapter 3, as soon as Adam and Eve assumed that they were going to be their own boss, they knew in their heart of hearts that they were faking it. They knew deep down in their hearts that they were not designed by God to live that way. They weren't qualified to do the job of being God. Only God can be God. And they knew that they were basically pretending. And now they're going to spend every single day looking over their shoulder, feeling vulnerable and slightly ashamed. Part of Adam and Eve's shame is the fear that at some point the clock would strike midnight and the party would be over and they would turn back into pumpkins And everyone would see that their assumption of control all this time has been a bad dream. What we're trying to do here is paint a little word picture of what shame felt like for them. 
for Adam and Eve. The sense of not being enough anymore. The fear of abandonment now. And this inner sense of being a fraud and a fake. This is how it was in the beginning. At first, there was no shame. And then there is this appalling new experience of shame being encountered. This is how the Bible describes the beginning of shame. As we move on to think about what shame does, what I really appreciate about Genesis is the simple, authentic humanness of their reactions. I think we might even say that everything about the Genesis narrative is really a kind of natural defense mechanism. They feel shame because, they've, because of what they've done. And what happens next? They basically hide from God. They begin to obsess over what they look like. And they begin to blame one another for it. This was a totally new experience, but in a way totally understandable. Burning with shame, they hide, they cover themselves up, and they blame one another. And I I want you to see the conflict that sin and shame brought into human experience. It wasn't there to begin with. And this kind of shame is a paradox that breeds itself. Their natural defense mechanism actually makes their shame worse. The way they respond to shame by hiding only serves to increase their shame. And they're now, for the first time, insecure, hating people who now have the capacity to hurt one another. They crave and need the love that they've lost. And yet, at the same time, they're also fearful of it. And when it comes too close, they want to push it away. We all know what that feels like, don't we? We want it and we don't want it. The Bible here is pointing to a universal human problem. I think we all know deep down that there is something wrong with us just like they did. I wonder if you sense, as I do, the shadow of these traits in your own life too. For sure, these traits can be aggravated a great deal in our human relationships But that is not our primary issue. Underneath all of this shame talk is essentially a problem between us and God. And I think it would be helpful for us now to think about some of the practical behaviours that shame can lead to in our own lives. What what I'd like to do just for for a few minutes here is just think about three pairs of behaviours the practical behaviours, you'll recognise these. And I want to think about three categories, our activities, our relationships, and the way we cope with shame. Okay? And there's two things under each one. We'll, We'll be brief with each one. First of all, in our activity, shame can drive us to overwork. I think one reaction to shame, one possible reaction to the shame that we can sometimes feel is just to work harder. Adam and Eve immediately tried to cover up. And I I think this can be a defense mechanism for us too. I'm not enough. I don't measure up. What I'm going to do is just work harder to get there. I wonder if you're the kind of person who is driven in this kind of way. Maybe you're the kind of person who finds it hard to say no. When my work becomes really, essentially, an attempt to come up to scratch somehow, 
in order to avoid facing shame, I, I want to suggest to you that that is a treadmill that never stops. Actually, I can never deliver the kind of work that will soothe my shame. It's like a fig leaf that Adam and Eve tried to cover their shame with. It just will never be enough. Stories abound, don't they, of businessmen who spent their whole life trying to solve this issue and got to the end and realized, man, I have no friends. I've lost my family because I've been on a treadmill of overwork. For some other people, though, shame can go the other way. If shame can drive us on to overwork, I think for some of us, it can slow us down and force us back. The constant feeling of not measuring up can make us so afraid of failure that we don't ever try anything. The risk of exposure is too great. We can only ever do things that are totally safe. For some people, life is lived with the constant hum of anxiety in the background. An American psychiatrist, Kate Thompson, in his book entitled The Soul of Shame, tells of one of his clients coming to him. He was the owner of a small business that was doing okay, successful, but he was secretly anxious. And sometimes he would find himself daydreaming about how his business was going to fail and he and his family were going to live in a box under a bridge somewhere and it was all going to go wrong. His name wasn't Ian, uh, by the way. <laughs> because this story resonates for me, I can tell you. As, as they talked, this guy discovered that what he was self-diagnosing as anxiety was actually a deep-rooted sense of shame and inadequacy. It took them a few weeks to discover that. When it comes to the crunch, I will not be able to figure things out. People will realize that all this time I've been a fraud. I don't believe that I have what it takes. When it comes to the crunch, I won't be enough. What he thought was anxiety and worry was actually a deep-rooted sense of, I'm not enough. So underneath his presenting issue of worry was actually a deep-rooted sense of shame. I, I think it's really interesting that he thought his anxiety was making him feel shame, when in actual fact, it was a shame that was making him anxious. He had it the wrong way around. The second category, relationships. I think um, one of the ways shame can play out is that it makes us very fragile and can make us very sensitive. You know how it is, don't you? Someone pays you 20 compliments and you don't believe any of them. And they give you one insult and you remember it forever. The fragility that shame brings causes us to filter everything as if it revolves around me. Someone says, hey, those cakes that so-and-so made for the refreshments today were great, weren't they? And inside, I'm thinking, what about my case? Did you not like them? Or someone says, what a tragedy. Did you hear about so-and-so? Perhaps we should do something to help them. And inside, I'm thinking, nobody ever cares about me when I'm in trouble. We could go on for hours like that, couldn't we? Why are we so fragile? Why are we so intent on seeing all reality as if it revolves around me? For some of us, this fragile sensitivity can lead to anger. I want to say to you, often the roots of constant irritability 
or occasional uncontrollable outbursts of temper can actually be coming from a deep sense of shame. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. Research has certainly shown a very strong correlation between controlling and bullying behaviour and shame. On the other hand, I think in relational terms, shame can lead us to shut down. And by this I mean the, the isolating effects of shame, being relationally closed. For some of us, the thought of being vulnerable is so hard that we'll tend to avoid close relationships. It may be that we have many friends, but no real close ones. We don't want to give anything away. And we choose to live closed lives because it's too painful to really let someone else come in. We need to carry on coping. Here's coping mechanisms. People try to cope with shame through perfectionism. One way that we try and cope is to work hard to control the things around us Everything has to be in the right place. There's no room for any grey areas. It's a coping mechanism. And I think, lastly, addictive behaviours. For others, shame, I think, can be so powerful that all we can do is find ways to escape the bad feelings I think sometimes the beginning and the root of addictive behaviours is the desire to mask the pain of the shame we feel. Whatever it is we seek to get our high from, it's really to mask the pain. We could, we could go on like this all afternoon. What I, what I hope you're getting a sense of is that in all these behavioural traits is lurking a sense of shame. One writer puts it like this, under the anger, under the bitterness, under the shyness, under the depression is a sense there's something wrong with me. I'm guilty and I'm out of sorts. We've already been careful to highlight the fact that we need to distinguish very carefully between the shame that comes from being badly treated and the shame that comes from our own relationship with God being broken. We've said that our own human relationships, sometimes dysfunctional relationships, can deeply aggravate these feelings and symptoms. But I want to suggest to you from the Bible that underneath it all, this is a spiritual reality that we are out of sorts with God himself as individuals, as, as people. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, and verse 13, it says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is one who is looking right at us. And, and at some point, we do have to face him. That is where the shame that Adam and Eve felt is really rooted. They cannot bear for God to look at them anymore and whatever natural understandable techniques they might employ to evade and hide and cover and blame and maintain the illusion of control the truth is that before the all seeing eye of God they really are spiritually speaking naked and vulnerable We've had enough misery now. 
how is shame healed? As I've been reflecting on this whole thing, one thing strikes me over and over again, and it's this. Adam and Eve would not have enjoyed a Robbie Williams concert. Pop psychology is good at recognising the problem of shame, but the only answer it has is to be in denial. The sociologist I was talking about from called Brenny Brown, Dr. Brenny Brown, discovered this in her research. She did a whole raft of research. Let me read to you. Here's, here's her take on shame in the TED Talk that she did. She said, I could tell you a lot about shame, but here's what it boils down to. Thousands of stories, thousands of pieces of data, and this is what shame is. This is how it works. If I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, they have a strong sense of love and belonging, and folks who struggle for it, and folks who are always wondering if they're good enough, there was only one variable that separated the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging and the people who really struggle for it, and that was the people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. I think it's incredible that a secular scientist can do sociological research that verifies the need for faith. The one variable came down to they believe they're worthy, these people don't. What Brown is suggesting is that you can only live if you believe and know that you're loved. That's why shame tells us, when shame tells us we're not worthy, it is so crippling. But the problem for Adam and Eve is that they knew that they were not worthy. They have known love, they've given love, and now they're filled with shame. And the answer for them is not to sing, I am beautiful, I am powerful, and be in denial. The answer can never be for them to pretend they're worthy when they're not. I want you to see as well, by the way, that the cure for shame is not more rules either. Friends, what we need is not denial or a, some kind of system. What we need is a person. What we need, what they needed was someone who knew them and yet still loved them. What they needed as they cower in fear in the bushes in their poverty is someone wealthy enough to make things right again. What they need is for someone to cover their shame and to reassure them. What we need is a person who knows the worst about us and yet does not walk away. And Jesus is that person. We've been with Adam and Eve and seen them hiding we could have called it blushes in the bushes. I want to take you. I want to take you to the cross. Can we can we call it dross on the cross? I don't know. We've seen that shame says, can you remember three things? We're not enough. Fear of abandonment. And that one day we'll be exposed as fakes. Jesus experiences all three of those things. When he is hung naked on a cross for all to see. Humiliation. In his gospel, Matthew writes these words. Those who passed by held insults at him. 
shaking their heads and saying, Save yourself, come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. You fake. And we hear Jesus agonizingly cry out, Matthew tells us, in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the ultimate abandonment. His friends deserted him, and as he bore our sin and our shame in his body, even his father turned away from him. Do you sense the incredible contrast with us? We are full of shame and pretend that we're okay and we can't admit our weaknesses. We fear the risk of exposure. Jesus embraced exposure. We are the ones who are naked and desperately trying to get dressed. Jesus, clothed in glory, lays it all to one side and comes to be stripped bare. People mocked him because they thought he was a joke. Call yourself the son of God. Look at yourself. But do you know how the Bible describes the cross? Rob read to us from Hebrews chapter 12. And verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. He scorned its shame. At the cross, Jesus is saying, Come on, shame, do your worst. Show me what you've got. Give me a best shot. And I'll tell you, shame did do its best, didn't it? And he took it all. He didn't fight against it. He didn't try to argue with it. He endured it and absorbed it and killed it, stone dead. Friends, there is the possibility now of a different ending to your story and my story because of Jesus. Shame does not have to be the final word. When I was a young boy, I can remember I was younger than 10. My mum fainted in the bathroom while she was taking a shower. For, for a moment, I thought she died right there. But I remember going in to the bathroom and my instinct as a young boy was to cover her up and wrap her in a towel. This is the instinct of Jesus with us. He, Jesus did not come into the world to shame us but to come and clothe us, to clothe our nakedness and enable us to see and know and embrace the glory that deep down we've been terrified of. Jesus demands a kind of counterintuitive response. It is natural to hide. But the true healing of shame is not found in hiding, but in coming into the light. I was once counselling a poor lady whose husband had done something he should not have done. And she told me that he couldn't look at her. The shame he felt brought tears to his eyes and he simply couldn't bear to look up at his wife. Listen, the healing of shame 
is found when you and I have the courage not to look away, but to look up into the face of Jesus. What you will find there is not rejection, abandonment, ridicule, but the kind of love and grace that you and I need to cover our shame. In another place, this same Jesus could say, Come, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Because of Jesus, there's no need to compensate with overwork or underwork. There's no need to be hypersensitive or to shut down. There's no need to strive for some kind of perfectionism that can never be attained. And he can break the power of addiction. He is enough. He will never leave you or forsake you. And when you trust in him, you will never be a fake. Jesus saves us from the shame that we've caused and he soothes the pain of the shame that we've been tainted by. Let's pray. Father, please, would you set your people here free from shame? Please help us to lay our shame down at the feet of Jesus and help us to open our locked hearts to your grace and kindness. And where we've shamed one another, help us to confess our sins to one another and find your light and peace renewed in us. And where we're hurting because we've known the pain of a cruel and brutal world, would you help us to know that Jesus will forever hold us fast? Father, if there is some person here who has never trusted Christ, would you help them even now to see his beauty and to repent and believe on him and be saved? In his great name we pray. Amen.